Welcome to Building the Future, hosted by Kevin Horick. With millions of listeners a month, Building the Future has quickly become one of the fastest rising programs with a focus on interviewing startups, entrepreneurs, investors, CEOs, and more. The radio and TV show airs in 15 markets across the globe, including Silicon Valley. For full showtimes, past episodes, or to sponsor the show, please visit buildingthefutureshow.com. Welcome back to the show. Today we have Ross Blum. He's the COO at Sky Robotics. Ross, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks for having me, Kevin. Really appreciate it. But it, it's Skyline Robotics. Oh, let's try that again. What did I say? Just Sky. You said Sky. <laughs> Sorry. All right. Okay, let me try that again. Sorry. All right. Welcome back to the show. Today we have Ross Blum. He's the COO at Skyline Robotics. Ross, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me today, Kevin. Really excited to be here with you. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on the show. I think what you guys are doing at Skyline Robotics is actually really innovative and cool. But maybe before we get into that, let's get to know you a little bit better and start off with where you grew up. Sure. I, I grew up in New York City, uh, so I've been surrounded by skyscrapers my whole life, and it just feels like home. Okay, very cool. So you went to university. What did you take and why? So I went to a college called Babson College. Uh, okay. At Babson, you actually only have one option of a major uh, as an undergraduate, which is business management. But Babson okay. That's is not really terrible. known, <laughs> which, which is, but Babson's really known around the world for their uh, focus on entrepreneurship. You know, they've been rated number one for many decades in a row now on an annual basis. Uh, but, you know, from Babson, I thought I wanted to, you know, create a business at the intersection of television and sports. It was right around the time when sports rights fees, you know, the television deals were getting so out of control, you know, billions and billions of dollars, you know, annually. And so I went and got a master's from Georgetown uh, in okay. sports management. Uh, didn't really see the natural sort of like outlet, uh, you know, in terms of where I wanted to start a business from there. So I ended up pursuing law school at Cardozo back in New York City. And, uh, you know, in my three years at Cardozo, uh, I had the opportunity to be a part of what was called the Tech Startup Clinic. And okay. really fell back in love, uh, you know, with entrepreneurship. And so after I passed the bar, you know, I really knew that I didn't want to be sitting in a cubicle billing hours, uh, you know, for some client that I may not, you know, really love or care about. Uh, so, you know, I ended up deciding to come into the startup world uh, right after I passed the bar. Very cool. Okay, interesting. And obviously having a legal background in startups is never a bad thing. No, I've definitely been able to save a few dollars for the companies that I've worked for over time. So no complaints there. But, you know, I think that the biggest benefit of the, the legal background, honestly, is sort of, you know, risk tolerance. So a big part of law school and going through, uh, you know, becoming a lawyer is being able to evaluate risk and, um, you know, really being able to apply that to, you know, the businesses that I've worked in understanding what our risk tolerances are and, and where we want to push the boundaries and where we want to be safe. Uh, you know, really has been valuable as well. No, no, makes a lot of sense. So walk us through your career up until Skyline Robotics. Sure thing. So right after passing the bar, I joined a company called PingMD. At PingMD, we were a health tech company and a secure communications platform. 
doing telehealth before telehealth became really big and ubiquitous everywhere. So I, sure. I first started in a, a legal position at PingMD, but quickly started taking over some other departments. I quickly was tasked with rebuilding the sales team where we sort of reinvented it as like an SDR team. Uh, you know, I started making partnership presentations to, to hospitals, uh, you know, doctor's offices, et cetera. And, um, you know, eventually got a call from my chairman one day, honestly, that uh, he said that they weren't so pleased with the CEO's performance and wanted to know if I would go and sell the company. So as an entrepreneur, but having absolutely no clue how to go and do that, of course, I said yes. Um, <laughs> and, you know, got, got the team ready, built the decks, built, got the consideration set of who might buy us done. Uh, you know, led a few presentations and in about 90 days, we, we were able to, you know, get a deal done with a, with a buyer out of Miami. From, sorry. Going, uh, sorry. Yeah. No, yeah. Go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, so uh, right after PingMD, you know, the, the board and the investors in general had, were very pleased with me. So they sort of shot me around to all their other startup investments in, in New York City. Uh, I ended up deciding to join a company called Quid, uh, where we were a rare digital goods marketplace. Uh, so we partnered with brands such as Marvel, Disney, Hasbro, the NBA, Major League Baseball, 325 in total, and That's sold cool. rare, rare digital versions on a centralized format uh, you know, of their intellectual pro property, uh, but using sort of common forms that people were familiar with, you know, digital trading cards, digital stickers, and digital toys. And uh, although it's certainly not, you know, a Guinness Book of World Records by, by any means, uh, I built this portfolio of 20, uh, 325 brands and no one else has created a larger digital rights catalog on the planet to this point. Very so cool. at, at Quid, you know, started off in a partnerships, uh, you know, role, uh, but quickly again, sort of began rising throughout the organization, taking over more and more teams, eventually leading to the point where, you know, I got named COO a little bit after we were fortunate enough to raise our Series A from Sequoia. Okay, uh, you know, in, in that role, well, you know, con congrats is, is relative, you know, it's, a, it's, the, it's the high of highs, uh, you know, overall, sure. but you got to make it count from there as well. Um, but, you know, in the role of COO oversaw, you know, all day to day, uh, but really everyone at Quid and candidly now at Skyline as well knows that I love to call myself a janitor at the end of the, at the end of the day, my job is to clean things up and make them work better. And I love doing anything I can to make that possible. Very cool. Okay. So how did Skyline Robotics come on your radar and what made you actually join that team? Yeah, that's a, that's a great uh, uh, question. So my uh, the CEO of the company, who's named Michael Brown, Michael and I both joined in December of 2020. Uh, Michael and I have a twisted, you know, in a strange way, family sort of relationship. And he knew I was exiting Quid and Michael had been looking for, you know, automated window cleaning companies to potentially take the next step in his career. He's, you know, about 30 years older than I am, much more experienced, but always big into sort of uh, companies that are disrupting markets. Um, so he, he brought me into the loop and the first meeting I ever had with the founders of Skyline Robotics was actually about 11 months before I joined in January of 2020. Uh, presenting to them how I thought the business could grow, uh, you know, where, where we would need to sort of, you know, uh, you know, focus for the next sort of 6, 12, 18, and 24 months. 
and really sort of beginning to change the business model. When I had you know, met the founders, it was sort of a, a first party cleaning company. What I mean by that was they actually intended to have uh, you know, operators, sales and marketing staff in, in every single region you know, around the globe. But you know, imagine to, to reach every single building, you're going to need thousands and thousands of people. There's so many uh, you know, buildings out there. So we sort of reshaped the, the business model a bit to being sort of a B2B2C model. So we're, we're creating partnerships with current window cleaning companies who already have market share, but, you know, are already, you know, are still hungry, you know, for more. And uh, through the first 10 months or 11 months of 2020, uh, started having, you know, weekly calls, uh, trying to advise the founders, you know, a little bit on how to, you know, do things, handle things, change processes, things of that nature, and just began to sort of fall in love with the company, uh, fall in love with the potential. And that's one thing, this company has always had a ton of potential, but never any traction, never really getting going, um, and having a really tough time sort of breaking through. So, you know, the cold start problem is tough for everyone. Uh, everyone solves it a little bit differently. Um, but you know, for, for us coming in and sort of officially joining the company, uh, you know, it, it was sort of a change to the business model that has now allowed us to begin to get traction. Very cool. So how did you go about getting that change and restructuring the business model? Because that's a lot harder or it's easier said than done. Um, so it's been a lot of early mornings, uh, you know, for, for me. So the team in Israel is seven hours ahead of me. Oh. Um, I don't know if I've slept in the past year, uh, but, you know, it's, it's been a lot of, uh, you know, sweat and hard work that, that's gone into it, being up at the crack of dawn every single day um, and really just sort of creating the change. Now, it, it's easier said than done uh, in certain cases. And with Skyline, it's not as if there was sort of a tremendous business that had been built already. The technology was built, the technology has been on, on track, sort of like with the roadmap, but the business never really sort of got going. Um, so it's not as if, you know, we had a ton of deals in place and had to sort of renegotiate or, or sort of restructure, you know, how those deals existed or exist, you know, still today. Um, and so, you know, the technology was sort of the baseline and, and we had a lot of ability to, you know, still implement a new business model without really messing anything up. No, make, makes a lot of sense. So what exactly does Skyline Robotics do and how are you leveraging technology with hardware i get it's more complicated than hardware but we'll elaborate yeah on. yeah a hundred percent so uh first and foremost you know we're a software company actually all, all the hardware is all off the shelf product uh it's not oh, manufactured by us uh we we take you know um you know reputable brands products uh you know or you know assemble it in the way that we assemble it uh but our secret sauce really lies in the software layer but what we're doing at Skyline is we want to own the work at heights sort of market. Work at heights is defined as, you know, work that's completed five meters or higher, you know, in the air. But we're starting with, with window cleaning and starting with our first product, Osmo. So, you know, our, our vision for the product, Osmo, is to own the facade. What I mean by that is not just window cleaning happens on the facade of the facade of a building, there's inspection, there's masonry, there's polishing, and, and a few other, you know, categories of items as well. Um, but, you know, the, the product is in a place where we can start with window cleaning and begin to build those product extensions from there. 
So our vision really for Osmo is to own the facade. And, um, you know, with, in the world of prop tech right now, which is, you know, incredibly hot in, in a lot of ways, 99.9% uh, is really focused on sort of the indoor environment of a building, uh, either, you know, the operations becoming more efficient, onboarding new tenants, lead generation, things like that. What separates us is that we're focused on what happens outside of the four walls, and there's very okay. few people that are focused on that. Got it. Okay. So how exactly does Os Osmo work and how do you tie the software into uh, like basically something that's in the sky? <laughs> it's a great question. So we use existing building infrastructure, which is a really, really important point in how the product was developed. There had been previous attempts, you know, even dating back, you know, a couple decades of people trying to, you know, create automated window cleaning products, but they required custom infrastructure be installed on the roof. Uh, once you're installing anything custom on a roof after it's already been approved by, you know, whichever, you know, city or state, you know, department of buildings, the compliance hurdles become very, very tough. So when, when creating Osmo, honestly, some of the first meetings that the company ever had much before I joined the company uh, were with regulators. Uh, you know, understanding, you know, what would be acceptable, what wouldn't be acceptable, because if the company was going to make the investment into, you know, building this project over a number of years, product over a number of years, uh, they obviously wanted to make sure that it would fit within sort of compliance regulations. So, you know, one of the big sort of factors that, you know, that comes into play for us and what makes us different than people that have come before us is there's nothing custom that's required at any building. Uh, what people know about window cleaning usually is that they've seen the, you know, generally two guys, you know, on the side of the building, you know, with their squeegee and, and uh, you know, towels and things like that, you know, cleaning each window. What people don't see uh, typically is that there's actually a humongous crane that's located on the top of the building. That crane is called a building maintenance unit or a BMU. And that crane okay. it actually controls that basket that you see people standing in. So a lot, a lot of our software, uh, so, so our product is designed to fit into any single BMU uh, that exists. Uh, there's probably a few out there, a very small sliver of the market that maybe we, we don't fit into just based on the size of the product. Uh, but the product weighs you know, about the same as a, as a human being, uh, plugs right into the basket and uh, actually automates the use of the crane as well to make the cleaning process more efficient. Interesting. So how does the software actually make, like use AI to actually clean the window properly? Sure, so uh, there's a lot of different layers, obviously, to, to the software that's been written. Uh, you know, we, we, use, we have a LiDAR camera or sensor, you know, that's part of the system. The LiDAR is looking actually for the window frames. Uh, so it's oh. defining when it's actually, uh, which, which is important because there's a lot of reflectivity, you know, in the glass, whether it's from the sun or otherwise. Sure. So filtering that out, you know, is, is an important piece of the as is that it's sort of, you know, in front of a window, you know, the brush will, you know, engage with the window, um, and actually monitor sort of like the cleaning quality, you know, that exists. Uh, for, the, for the time being, you know, we found that three strokes left and right uh, produces a very high cleaning quality, and that's been sort of independently tested, uh, you know, by a, by a potential partner of ours. 
And, um, you know, as it's cleaning, you know, the, the facade, as it's going back and forth, it, you know, it descends uh, once it determines that it's been, you know, it's clean enough. And we'll keep moving down the facade, you know, at the rate uh, as efficiently as it can. And about 200 times every single second, the, the cleaning path is recalculated. That's important because there's a lot of variables, uh, you know, that we might face. You can think of like wind, for example, which could, you know, reposition the basket, you know, as sure. an example. So it's important that Osmo's you know, brain is able to realize what it has cleaned, what it hasn't cleaned. And, you know, even with those disturbances or, or movements in the basket, it understands exactly what it has done and what it still needs to do. And, you know, we'll, we'll proceed as efficiently as possible. Interesting. So is uh, Osmo actually connected to like cell towers and is it constantly sending data or is it self-containing thing? So there, there are sort of a suite of sensors that are included and those sensors do need to communicate, you know, with each other. Um, and so we do have, a, you know, an Ethernet over IP system as well as a 4G antenna that's usually on site with us as well for redundancy. Okay. Um, and uh, yeah, so the, the sensors, including, you know, some that are located or connected to the crane so it can tell how far down the facade, you know, essentially, you know, it's descended already. Um, you know, need to be able to communicate with each other and, um, you know, obviously an important piece of the puzzle to make sure that the system always knows, you know, exactly what's happening from many different perspectives. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. So I'm curious then to dive a little bit deeper into the actual software side, because like, it sounds so simple, but from a software perspective, it's it's very complex what you guys are doing. You're constantly checking things. You're constantly worried about weather conditions um, and a handful of other things. So do you want to dive a little bit deeper into some of the aspects and features of the software? Well, you know, we, we can certainly go take the conversation there a little bit, Kevin. You know, I, I think... Um, you know, one of the important sort of factors that I, I haven't really brought up yet is really safety. Uh, one of the big sort of value props of, of what we do, um, you know, is obviously reduce the risk to, to human life. And we, we would sort of be doing this counterintuitively um, if safety wasn't a big priority in any sort of feature that was being developed. And so any, any single feature for the most part, you know, that we're developing, we always bring in either a safety expert, a regulator or otherwise, just to always ensure that what we're building is not just, you know, compliant, uh, but also sort of like independently evaluated as sort of like a safe approach, you know, to, to be able to handle situations. So, you know, we, we haven't right. had any instances where, you know, we, we've, uh, you know, destroyed anything or anything like that. Um, but, you know, with multivariable environments, you know, anything can happen at any point. And so safety and sort of like redundancy across the system are just crucial. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. And sure. Right. Like, especially with wind and it can get pretty wild. Right. And can sway that little basket quite a bit. Right. And yeah, yeah. No, that, that and, makes sense. And, and some of the, you know, most important features that the company has developed and, and candidly, it'll be a feature that, you know, will, will continue, you know, uh, optimizing as we go on is the sort of stabilization features, you know, that exists being able to restabilize the basket, even with gusts of wind. Um, so we actually have three different variants of a stabilization algorithm 
uh, depending on how thick the window sill of a building is. So not not the no, window, but the window sill, because uh, Osmo will sort of reverse oscillate in a sense to restabilize the basket in a sort of uh, you know counter to the forces that it's experiencing in a live format. And then as it restabilizes and gets within sort of like the, the thresholds that we've set for the system, it rebegins sort of like the cleaning process. So, you know, the, the stabilization algorithms are sort of core and fundamental, you know, to everything that we do. Um, and, you know, really sort of, you know, again, sort of help us sort of separate ourselves from competition in the marketplace. Right. Okay. So does a human being, though, actually have to go to the top of the building? load uh osmo back into the basket and then once it's done kind of take it out and and put it away or how does that kind of work sure so we we don't run the operation without humans and i don't know that we ever will run the operation with with zero humans uh okay. we, we we currently have two humans who are on site during our operations uh one is uh sitting in front of a lot a laptop which is just what we call sort of like the operator laptop which has a gui he can see everything he or she can see everything that's happening uh he can send the he or she can send the robot back to its like home position uh if there's any error messages that come up you know the the gui has prompts uh you know and can direct the operator and sort of like next steps to follow um, and, you know, the, the other person is typically either a lookout or just someone who's, you know, on site to, you know, release, um, you know, more either power cord or water reel, because uh, two things that our system requires are water and power. And right. so always making sure, you know, that the, the reels are sort of let out appropriately is something that's uh, still a little bit of a manual process for us. But by the end of this year, uh, we'll have automated reels. Uh, that'll communicate with the rest of the system and we'll we'll be able to reduce the number of staff on site to one human. Got it. Okay. And so you mentioned earlier looking at partnering with current companies that do this. What's the learning curve for a company to adopt this technology? So it's it's a great question, Kevin. We uh, we're about to sort of like announce our first major partnership. So we've been operating the units in Israel as sort of a, a first party company, not just okay. to clean cleaning operations, but you know lots of R and D sort of like field testing. You know, it's a type of thing where like the world has to be our lab. You know, at the end right. of the day, we can only you know we we have a setup in in our office. You know that that's a lab, but being able to test on buildings is, is vitally vitally important. Uh, you know, in order to sort of like validate, you know, the releases, um, you know, as, as sort of successful. Um, but, you know, for, to this point, we actually haven't trained, uh, you know, fully trained a third party. That's about okay. to happen in about, uh, you know, about a month from now. And uh, we've, you know, invested a lot into training, uh, you know, materials, certainly revising the product manuals, uh, all safety procedures, things like that. Uh, we currently have slotted a, a five-day training course, uh, okay. but it is it, it is something that uh, you know we're we're going to learn as we go and hopefully get more efficient over time. So five days we view as uh, you know a lengthy period of time for the training, uh, but we're just over budgeting time just to be safe. Got you. Okay, and then how do you handle like tricky corners or or tight corners or small corners? Is it kind of similar to how to like a human would handle it or, or how do you deal with some of the trickier architecture on buildings? 
Yeah, that, that's a great question. So we do a significant amount of testing on complex facades, but we don't outwardly claim uh, to this point to be handle any architecture that exists. Um, you know, for us, we, we know we need to be able to handle all, all sort of architectural angles. And these architects are getting more and more creative every single day. Sure. Um, but, you know, at, at the end of the day, there's so much market opportunity that exists with flat facades. Um, you know, which make up the majority of the skyscrapers that, that exist. But in some of the more recent, you know, development efforts that have happened, uh, you know, there's certainly, uh, you know, more complex architecture and, and we know we need to be able to handle those. So we can handle the majority of the market, um, but we know we need to, you know, be able to handle 100% of the market that's out there. Got you. Okay. And, and so is some of that stuff, kind of getting back to my software question, is like some of that stuff software upgrades or would you have to like potentially change out different arms or, or how would that potentially work so you know it, it's not going to be exactly one size fits all it's going to be like one size okay. fits 99.5 percent right. uh, there's always going to be some building out there that has some architectural feature that you know candidly might just be you know a little bit too difficult you know for for osmo but as we're getting going here and as we're partnering uh, or beginning to partner, you know, with window cleaning companies, the way that this is sort of positioned to them is that, you know, this is like the, the most high powered squeegee they could have in the world. Um, it's going to make them more efficient, reduce time on, on site. Uh, but today it might not be able to handle 100% of everything. So again, we, we know we need to get to, to that point in time uh, and whether it's a, a software or mechanical upgrade, it might depend on the specific feature that we're talking about, Kevin. Uh, mm -hmm. But we, we do obviously uh, you know, wanna lean into as many sort of uh, software angles to implementation as possible and, and reducing the number of times that we would have to change any components on the hardware side. Sure, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. And then I'm assuming then all the the units are are constantly being updated or you're pushing software updates on a somewhat of a regular schedule yeah you're exactly right you know um you know when you're inventing things though kevin I, you know i'm used to sort of like mobile app development you know sure, from my yep. previous companies uh yeah your, your two-week sprints or you know, in some cases maybe a four-week sprint this or that you know something's coming out you know every two weeks if you're a consumer uh you know in, in this company you know the development process is obviously a little bit different you've got to you know align mechanical electrical uh, as well as software and it you know moves in sort of a, a waterfall format you know in some ways like that um so you know we, we do have regular updates to to code but it's not regular in terms of you know standardized as every two weeks or every four weeks or things like that sure that that makes sense so how have you managed your roadmap compared to maybe some feature requests that you're getting from the companies you're starting to partner with because they like some of them probably understand technology and software a lot and probably not so much and everywhere in the middle and it's how do you juggle that because that's got to be challenging and then making sure it works with what you you currently have a hundred percent. And as we're really about to, you know, get going and onboarding our first major customer, uh, you know, in the next few weeks, the thing that I'm most excited for Kevin is, is to get their feedback. Okay. Um, so we, we have had plenty of people look at the product and give us feedback. 
a lot of their feedback honestly aligns with how we want to make the product better how we want to make it more efficient how we want to you know make it sort of you know both uh you know visually and sort of from a product standpoint you know more effective um and, but there have been instances where there's not 100 percent alignment and you know when when you're in any business and and that comes up you always have to you know look at you know what do i need to do um you know to either make the customer happy what are the costs involved in that what are the benefits of that um or what am i going to do because i believe you know that this is sort of like the next step in the roadmap that i need to take so these these sort of problems are, are not something that's unique to us at skyline robotics what makes us you know a little bit different is we're just we're, we're purely inventing this you know stuff it's not as if somebody else has created this product or this type of product before there's some roadmap or playbook or you know however else you want to call it you know for for us to follow um so so we know you know candidly where, where our weak points are uh we know where we're strong and you know again as we're you know bringing on this first major customer you know we, we do expect a lot of feedback and for me personally i i love that stuff i can't wait to be on site taking notes uh you know really digging into the details you know with them and you know we're ready to attack you know that and add it to the backlog and prioritize it appropriately uh, you know, given sort of the other, you know, projects that we have ongoing, but, you know, we, we know it's sort of like the entering the commercialization phase for the company, you know, brings up, you know, uh, new challenges, new things you need to be able to do a different type of agility that a company needs to have rather than just when you're you know building on the R and D side. Um, and, and we're ready for it all. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. And you're actually, it's interesting that you're, you bring this up because you're you are you're right you're at like a really exciting point in the company's history or any company's history where you're onboarding your big clients you get to see their feedback you get to see the good and bad and how things are playing out and then you know it's nothing's better than real world feedback from an actual user and if you get the luxury of actually being able to see it in action while you know they're using it that's even better a hundred percent. And this is something that I definitely tried to, you know, champion at the previous companies that I was at, you know, we didn't just use, you know, user testing.com, which a lot of people sure. do, you know, we, we would bring in, you know, people off the street, you know, we would give them a $10 gift card to Starbucks, uh, you know, try to get some, you know, real live feedback that we could, you know, engage with uh, customer feedback is incredibly important, candidly, no matter what business you're in. And we cannot turn a blind eye to it. We have to embrace it and we have to know that it's going to make us better. Sure. So you have a pretty big demo coming up in New York City. Do you want to talk about what exactly you're doing with that? Sure. We can talk about it a, a little bit. I'll probably leave a, a few details out, you know, for, for the time being. Sure. Uh, but, you know, the, the broad strokes are New York is the mecca of skyscrapers. Uh, I'm from New York. Uh, Michael, our CEO, uh, is from you know New Jersey slash New York, um, and we have you know great relationships that that exist here. Um, New York makes a lot of sense for us for a few reasons. Not just the fact that there's a lot of buildings here. Not just that it's uh, you know a, a pinnacle of you know being a city at least here in the United States, um, but really because of the the labor costs as well um one of the the things that sort of drives uh you know payback period and things like that is the labor costs in a given market and for window cleaners uh there's no better paid market than than new york city 
So we're, we're partnering, you know, with a, a current building services company called Platinum Inc., uh, which already owns at least one contract for 65% of the Class A buildings in New York City. And our, our first uh, deployment with Platinum, which will be run by Platinum staff after having been trained and certified by Skyline staff, uh, you know, will be located at 10 Hudson Yards which we are incredibly, incredibly excited about. And for those of you who, who don't know, uh, you know, Hudson Yards is a brand new sort of like premier development here in New York City. Um, you know, there's a number of buildings on the Hudson Yards campus. And, um, you know, there's there's no better sort of company to, to bring this to or campus to bring this to because one of the, the core pieces of what Hudson Yards, uh, you know, is, is related to you know innovation and thinking differently and and things like that. So we're we're incredibly incredibly excited, emboldened, and just you know ready to get going, uh, you know for for this partnership and for the first deployment here in New York City. Very cool. So I'm curious then, how do you guys decide on? Kind of where to go next is your big focus just getting osmo in you know as many cities as possible and then work on an, another product or are you guys working on a bunch of other products in this space as well you don't have to necessarily talk about specific products but like i'm just kind of curious and figuring out are you really focused on osmo or are you kind of working on a bunch of stuff yeah, so so it's it's a great question, Kevin, because it's a huge strategic point. Um, so while we're very excited for what's happening in New York, and we know we're going to be bringing units to New York, uh, a number of units to New York over the next couple of years, um, we also understand where we are as a company. And I brought this up before, but we're sort of at this you know inflection point of like starting commercialization and about to get sort of our major first you know customer and customer feedback. Yep. We en envision that with that feedback, um, you know, we've got a little bit of work left to do, uh, you know, essentially. So while we're beginning to form relationships or at least, you know, creating NDAs with window cleanings on a window cleaning companies on a global basis, uh, we're not in a rush today to try to sign 10 deals, 15 deals, because uh, we don't know that we're exactly ready to sort of go from zero to like mass scale you know overnight you. there's sort of this like interim period where we want to sort of validate with some with a third party that we're really ready for that um and we think that that's sort of like the smart and strategic way to grow this because i can't tell you kevin uh you know enough we get so much inbound interest uh, for this product and not just sure. from small places around the globe, really from major, major players, no marketing efforts from the company, you know, to, to this point in time. Uh, these are people that just want to be innovative, that their brands are, you know, well-established, that they want to be future-proofed and things like that. And um, the, there's so much demand for the product that really what we're focused on is trying to do this the right way. Uh, rather than trying to get too far out over our skis and, you know, ending up in a bad position. No, I, I think that makes a lot of sense because it's, it, it's really easy to try to rush to as many people as possible. Right. And, and you want to make sure you iron out, iron out as many kinks as you can in the whole process before you do that. Right. And I think 
how you guys are going about it makes a lot of sense, especially when there's so many moving parts and things in play, um, you know, with software and hardware and, and human beings, right? And then weather conditions and a bunch of other things. I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and, and, and again, it's, it's having the conviction in our plan um, you know, that, that gives me confidence. And, and what I mean by that, again, if, if we wanted to go and, you know, pre-sell a bunch of units today, I, I feel pretty confident that we could go and do that. Okay. But we, we really want to build this the, the right way, because if, if I pre-sell units on a distributed basis, it means we need to be able to handle, you know, customer service everywhere, maintenance everywhere, like all at the same time. And right. those are, you know, extremely, you know, sort of uh, you know, risky propositions when you're talking about, you know, budgeting and things like that. So when we're entering a market, we want to enter the market with a, with a current key market participant, uh, you know, who has a number of buildings, you know, already under contract. And we're just inserting our product into their workflow and then growing the support network behind them. Right. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. So you obviously have a bunch of experience working with remote teams. What advice do you give people that are going to probably either have been working remote or will probably stay remote or partly remote once the pandemic is, you know, kind of not gone, but it's like COVID's not as much of a thing as it is currently. Yeah, no, it, it's it's a great question. It, and it's always a difficult balance to find, okay, you know, how am I going to structure my meetings, even when I'm in person in the office with everybody, the worst thing right. we can do as a company is be in meetings all day, because that means no one's being like productive. Totally. So how, how do we use our time like most efficiently to sort of structure what we're doing to get the right updates, the right touch points, and the right, you know, pieces of the process together so that everything just flows. And every organization's, you know, a little bit different on this front. But I, the thing that, you know, I, I would sort of stress to everybody is, uh, you know, don't inundate your, your staff, your team, you know, with meetings just because you're remote. Um, you've brought these people here because you think that they're valuable, because you think that they're great at what they do. You know, put your trust in them. But, you know, it's always that trust but verify sort of mentality, you know, that I bring. Sure. And, um you know, just just make sure that you're not, you know, uh, keeping everyone on the phone all day, every day, uh, because there's a lot of things to be done. It, it's really, really tough to build something out of nothing. And when you're a startup, it's you against the world and every second counts. So use that time wisely because time's the most valuable resource any of us have. No, I 100% I agree with you, but we're kind of coming to the end of the show. So how about we close with mentioning where people can get more information about Skyline Robotics and any other links you want to mention? Sure. You, you know, we, we certainly have a website, www.skylinerobotics.com. Uh, you know, we update, you know, Twitter and LinkedIn pretty regularly. We, we do have, uh, you know, Facebook and Instagram pages as well. Um, but, you know, since our business model is sort of B2B uh, more than it is B2C, uh, you know, we, we do prioritize sort of posting on, on LinkedIn and Twitter, you know, more than other platforms. Um, and, you know, you, you should be able to find uh, a lot of news about us, you know, in the very near future. And, you know, we're just so excited for everything that's coming down the pipeline. Um, and we are going to own the facade at the end of the day. Very cool. Well, Ross, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to be on the show. And I look forward to keeping in touch with you and have a good rest of your day. 
Thanks so much, Kevin. It's been great speaking with you and uh, you've got a great podcast here and just so happy to be a part of it. Thanks very much. You have a good rest of your day. Okay, bye. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website at buildingthefutureshow.com to join the free community, sign up for our newsletter, or to sponsor the show. The music is done by Electric Mantra. You can check him out at electricmantra.com and keep building the future.